Okay, uh, well, we've come to the point where we're going to break the bread of God's word together. Um, so let's bow our hearts and just commit this time of study to him, shall we? Well, Father, we do just thank you now. And Lord, we just commit this time of study to you. Lord, we ask that you lead us uh, in this time. Lord, soften our hearts, open our ears. Uh, Lord, we we know that naturally the, the human heart of mind is dull of understanding. Uh, Lord, just as your people Israel were accused of on so many occasions. And yet, Lord, through your spirit, Lord, we can understand. And we pray now that he would minister to us and work in each one of us as we look at these words, these words that are eternal, these words that will never fade away, that are preserved in heaven. And so, Lord, just speak to our hearts and minds now. Encourage us, edify us, challenge us, Lord, we pray, as we grow together in knowledge and grace this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, as I said, we are uh, going to carry on this morning in our study of First Peter. We are uh, up to uh, verse 10, um, but let's just start right from the beginning, because I think it'd be just good to get a kind of a, a running start as we go into this this morning. So we're just going to pick up the, the first verse, the first chapter, um, and we read there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, once again, that's the area of northern Turkey as we would think of it today, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time wherein you greatly rejoice though now for a season if need be you're in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, in whom, through though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now that's where we got to in our study last week. So much obviously in those opening verses. Um, but it brought up this whole question about salvation because Peter addresses, in a sense, what we would sometimes refer to as the paradigm or the model of salvation as re re uh, recorded in scripture for us. So for those who love and believe in Jesus Christ, salvation is past. Okay. It's a done deal. It was completed at Calvary. He has given us new birth that's been completed you can't add to it you can't contribute to it it's been done you have been given a free gift this gift of eternal life and we looked in john chapter 10 where we're given that great promise in fact even on uh, our, our bible study in ephesians on thursday evening we were looking through the same uh, ideas that are presented there as well um, that we are held in the Father's hand, we're held in Jesus' hand. This promise of eternal life isn't something that can just be forfeited or lost because it's been given to us as a gift. But salvation is also present. 
Now, Peter in verse 3, by the way, just alludes to the fact that it's a done deal, that he has given us new birth. That's what we read there. But in verse 5, what we've just read, we, we're told that, that our salvation is present through faith are shielded by God's power. Now, that is the, the present situation that we're in. We are being saved, as sometimes is referred to, because even now we are being shielded by God's power. We are being saved from the onslaught, from the attacks of the enemy. And, of course, we're going through these trials and we're learning to become overcomers. But salvation is also future, and that's the verse that we just concluded with there in verse 9. Um, it's our inheritance, it's that which is to come, it's that which is to be revealed in the last time, it's the goal of our faith, where we are removed from this realm into the presence of God himself. And so, as has been put before, um, in terms of salvation being past, you know, it, it's a completed work. In terms of present, it's an ongoing work. We are being saved so we've been, have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin and we will be saved, future tense, from the very presence of sin. So all those uh, elements really come under what scripture uh, covers when it speaks about salvation. It is a, an ongoing work. It's the same as really as Paul said that he who began a good work in us will continue that work. It's not just uh, we are saved and that's it. You know, this is why we have the wonderful um, reminder every time we celebrate communion that it's not just the body of Christ that we celebrate, the body that was broken for us, that paid for our sin, but it's the blood of Christ. And of course, that blood speaks of new life. And then, of course, it wasn't just that Jesus died on the cross, that his body was was uh, uh, receiving of the judgment from God that we deserve, the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath. It wasn't just that his blood was shed. But it's also then on the third day he was resurrected. And of course that resurrection is that confidence that we have that we also will inherit that new life, that, that life after this earthly uh, time has come to an end. So all of those things are, are detailed in scripture. Uh, and of course we don't have one chapter on salvation. It's throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, New Testament. Uh, there's not just one portion that deals with this. It's, it's the, the picture that we have throughout. So let's jump into the next block. We're going to make a run of 15 verses, if we can, by God's grace this morning. Um, but there's a lot in here, and hopefully this will be edifying and encouraging to us. So we just simply carry on with, with what Peter's saying. Speaking of this salvation, he says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. This is a, a, quite a remarkable statement, in it, if you think about it. Because it's placing you and I, those to whom Peter's writing effectively, in an incredibly privileged position. Because it's saying that those prophets who prophesied, they searched diligently. And it says, of the grace that should come unto us. We are now beneficiaries and recipients of that which the prophets spoke of coming. They didn't see it. Most of them didn't get to see it come to pass. Even the likes of John the Baptist it was really the kind of the end of those prophets of the Old Testament era. You know, John the Baptist himself didn't fully see that grace come. Yes, he met Jesus. Yes, he was able to baptize Jesus. Of course, he made that comment that he wasn't worthy uh, of that responsibility and that honor. And yet John himself didn't see the cross. He didn't see salvation in the sense that we understand it through the shed blood of the lamb. John, of course, will we'll come back to this because Peter makes this reference about Jesus being the Passover lamb that was shed for us. You remember back in the book of Genesis, 
in Genesis 22, when Abraham is taking Isaac uh, up to Mount Moriah, the place you and I know as Calvary, uh, where he was to be offered as an offering. The question is asked, where is the lamb? And of course, Abraham, that's Isaac's question. You know, they've got the word and everything else they need. But where is the lamb? And of course, Abraham responds and says, God will provide himself a lamb. Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's exactly what the Old Testament speaks of, that God would give himself. There is no other solution. There is no other way that this could be accomplished, that God would provide himself. Now, that question remains unanswered because obviously shortly after that statement, uh, a lamb, uh, sorry, a ram was seen called in the thicket and they offered the ram. But the, the statement that Abraham makes is God will provide himself a lamb. So the question was never answered on Mount Moriah at that time. It took another 2,000 years for the question to be answered. And it's John the Baptist actually himself that when Jesus steps onto the scene says, Behold the lamb. This is the lamb that Abraham said would come. This is the lamb that Abraham said God would send. And of course it is on then Mount Moriah on Calvary that that lamb is offered for us. So we see so much in the Old Testament of that which was looking forward to what we now experience. You know, again, and the prophets wrote of the days that we have seen, so really from the time of Christ onwards, and are still living in now. Because so much of what was written in the Old Testament doesn't just apply to the first coming of Jesus. It applies to the second coming. In fact, I believe it was uh, in J. Barton's, Barton Payne's Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, uh, he makes the comment that there are eight times more prophecies regarding the second coming than regarding the first coming. So although we have so much of scripture about the time when Jesus came the first time, there's a significant greater portion of scripture devoted to the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, which the prophets wrote about. And we are living right now in the days. It was one of the challenges that Chuck Mizzler used to uh, often um, put to audiences or to people he was teaching. And that was that the Bible speaks more about the days that we are living in than it did about the time that Jesus walked the shores of Galilee or climbed the mountains of Judea. And he said it's a preposterous statement. He said and he encouraged people to go and challenge that statement. But actually, you know, you look at scripture, you look at what's going on, and we find that the Bible does speak with incredible clarity about the days in which we're living, about all the things that are going on around us. And of course, all is that, that is yet to come. So we're living in these days that have been prophesied. Now, just remember the disciples' words on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember, uh, this is on the, the, the occasion, the, the Sunday after the, uh, or the, the morning of the resurrection as it happened. But at the, the, at this point, the disciples hadn't realized. And these two disciples are traveling down to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And they're very sad because they're talking over all the things that had come to pass. And suddenly a, a stranger appears and walks alongside them. And basically says, you know, guys, why are you so sad? And the response, of course, is, well, haven't you heard of all that's gone in Jerusalem in the last few days? <laughs> and Jesus, who obviously is this individual that's now walking with, they don't recognize him straight away. Jesus just says to them, what things? Uh, it's, it's kind of a little bit tongue in cheek almost. Um, and so they start to explain to Jesus and Jesus starts to reveal to them from the scriptures all the things that had been revealed. Now, the interesting thing, though, is the comment that these two disciples make. They made the comment to Jesus, not realizing this is Jesus, but we trusted that it had been he 
which should have redeemed Israel. You see, there was this understanding, even amongst the disciples, that there was a Messiah coming. Somebody who was coming who was going to deliver Israel. Someone who was going to be the Savior. Now, they didn't fully understand the picture, but they understood enough from these Old Testament prophets that that would have been recorded of all that was to take place. <clears throat> or consider John the Baptist's question. John sends his disciples to go and ask Jesus this question. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Clearly, and that is implied that John knew that one was coming. And this is what those Old Testament prophets had written about. So many, right really from the book of Genesis. Uh, you know, even uh, from Genesis 3.15, the promise there that the seed of the woman would come and that would bruise the head of the serpent. And of course, the situation with Cain and Abel, and we can go through the whole, the whole testament. You know, people that, that question the Bible, that doubt its authority, that doubt that it's God's word, you know, clearly have never understood all these models and these types that are laid down in advance. Some of them, you know, thousands of years before the events that took place. Of course, we've got that great list of names in Genesis 5 that we've gone through uh, a number of times, which reveal the whole of the gospel in the names of the characters that are listed there. The whole gospel message just revealed all these things recorded by the prophets in the Old Testament about the time of which we're living in. And it goes on in Peter, Peter verse 11, 1 Peter 1 11 says, searching what, so this is what they did, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify when it testified beforehand, and there's two things that are mentioned here, the sufferings of Christ, that's the first thing, and then secondly, and the glory that should follow. So we'll look at those things in a second. So these are the things that typically they were looking into, they were searching, they were trying to understand, when is it that the Messiah will come? When is it that this one who will deliver Israel, the one who will be a saviour to the world, when is it that that one would come? Now, of course, Genesis 22, we mentioned a moment ago, referred to by the Jews often as the Akedah. Um, this is, again, where Abraham went to offer up Isaac. The whole thing is a model of that which Christ accomplished. And speaking of the sufferings, you know, Abraham again said that the Lord will, God will provide himself a lamb. Abraham also names the place Jehovah-Jireh, meaning in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. You know, God is going to accomplish that which was preordained from before the foundation of the world. It will be accomplished on that very spot. Abraham seemingly aware that he was acting out prophecy in advance. We look in Genesis 39 to 41. We see there Joseph's rejection and imprisonment. Joseph was rejected of his brethren, just as Jesus was rejected of his. And of course, in a similar sense, you know, Jesus effectively is kind of incarcerated, um, you know, by the Romans and obviously leading to his crucifixion. But there's so many parallels between Joseph uh, and Jesus and so on. Psalm 22, you know, there we have recorded the words that Jesus spoke at Calvary. Uh, it's as if it's being spoken first person as you read Psalm 22, speaking of the sufferings of Christ, all recorded beforehand. Psalm 69 records the childhood of Jesus, the how Jesus had become the song of the drunkards and so on. Isaiah 53, that great passage that we know so well, speaks of the suffering servant, the one who would bear the wrath of God, the cup of God's wrath for us. Uh, he was bruised for our iniquities, you know, and by his stripes we're healed. You know, these, these are the things that the prophets had prophesied beforehand. They testified before these things happened 
about the sufferings of Christ. You know, this is one of the ways that we know for sure that Jesus really was the Messiah. Somebody couldn't just turn up on the scene and pretend to be the Messiah. Of course, they'd been false messiahs even before the time of Christ. But when Jesus arrives, he fulfills so many, over 300 specific prophecies that have been recorded in the Old Testament. And every one of them is detailed. Chuck Mizzler again just does a fantastic study looking at the probability that any one person could just fulfill these prophecies. And he starts off by just taking eight. Uh, And the conclusion is that no one individual could fulfill even just eight. He he then jumps it up and takes 48 and looks at the possibility. Uh, And it's astronomically impossible. I mean, the first, just just eight, the, the kind of the conclusion he reaches um statistically it's as if you covered the whole of texas in america i'm sure you're familiar with the size of texas a massive state one of the largest states in america if you cover the whole of the state of texas with with coins say typically 10p coins or something you know up to about two feet deep and then you mark just one of those coins with a red pen and you drop it from a plane and it could land anywhere in that region your chance of, of picking that one coin out of all of those millions or billions trillions of coins that's the chance of one person fulfilling those prophecies. It's impossible. He then goes on and expounds it and takes it to 48. You know, it just shows that it's just utterly impossible for these things to have been fulfilled. All the prophecies about Christ and his coming and his suffering, it's impossible that any other individual could have fulfilled these things. And I love his conclusion. He says, you know, he's more sure about Jesus Christ being the Messiah than he is about any other fact in the universe, including his own name. You know, and the point he's making is that actually, you know, whatever other thing we may think we know of, we've got empirical evidence, things that we can test and we can verify to prove with beyond any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is one of the reasons we have prophecy. Peter actually will tell us this a little bit later on uh, and uh, as we go through that which he wrote. Of course, Daniel chapter 9, one of the most incredible prophecies in the Old Testament, um, this prophecy that detailed the very day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem, uh, the day that he would be accepted as effectively the lamb, uh, the lamb that was to be slain for us. He rode in on the 10th of the month, 10th of Nisan, uh, just as the Passover lambs were being selected um, for slaughter only four, four or five days later or so on. Uh, and Daniel tells us that Jesus would be the one or the Messiah would be the one who would be cut off, but not for himself. So Jesus' sufferings, again, weren't for his benefit. They were for our benefit. And of course, we have then the likes of Jonah. Jonah, one who descended into Hades three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. You know, and this this picture of Christ again. So, I mean, this is just a snapshot, but there are so many scriptures we could go to thinking about these prophets who foretold that which is coming. Of course, with Jonah, he also then uh, is a model of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well. And that leads on to the the second thing that Peter says here about the glory uh, that should follow. Because actually in Genesis 24, again, you have the picture on the um, uh, Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. The fascinating thing in the narrative is that when Abraham comes down from the mountain, he comes down and we read that his men are with him and everything else and they return to the family. There's no mention of Isaac. Now, of course, we understand that Isaac did come down. He did go back with the family, but he's been intentionally edited out of the text by the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, because you don't get to see Isaac again until chapter 24 when he's united with his bride. In just the same way that after Christ's 
death on the cross, after Christ became that sacrificial offering, became that lamb, we don't get to see Jesus now again until he's united with his bride. What a, a, an incredible picture. So the prophets also spoke of the glory that should follow. And the bride of Christ, of course, the church is the bride. We're looking forward to that time when we will see him. And, and these things have been foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Again, Genesis 41 to 50, the exaltation of Joseph. When Joseph was then raised from that dungeon, the lowest place, to become seated at the right hand of the power, of the majesty of the Pharaoh. And just as Jesus has been exalted to sit at the right hand of the Father, all these models and types, everything in the Old Testament was pointing toward Jesus. 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the great chapters in the Bible, so, so important in understanding God's plan, speaks about the throne of David and tells us seven times that it is everlasting, that it's an eternal throne. This is, again, the throne that Jesus will rule and reign on. Mary, when she was visited by Gabriel, was told that the baby that she was carrying would sit on the throne of David. That throne didn't exist in Jesus' time. Okay, It was a throne that had effectively come to an end with Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. He was carried away to Babylon. The crown was effectively taken to Babylon. But the crown comes back in the hands of the Magi. The Magi, some 500 years later, travel back, no doubt because of things Daniel had shared with them, come back to the land of Israel with this crown effectively, and they come to the palace where they'd expect to find the king and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod, of course, is very upset by that statement and sets about his plan to try and destroy any pretender to the throne, any, any pretender to his power. But of course, the Magi find Jesus and they bring him these gifts. And in a sense, they anoint him, acknowledge him, uh, ratify that he is the rightful king. So the crown then comes back and Jesus will be that one to sit on the throne of David for all eternity. Psalm 2, we see there Jesus seated at the right hand of God, judging the nations you know, the Lord is going to laugh, we're told in Psalm 2. He's going to have the, the world of derision. Those that have mocked, those that have, uh, you know, questioned his authority, his position, his uh, omnipotence, you know, all these things that the world challenges, that will all be made to look foolish. And the, the sun is seen in uh, Psalm 2 as ruling, as rolling with a rod of iron. Psalm 50, we're told there that Jesus will be the one that will judge the nations, he will judge his people, but he will also judge the earth. In Isaiah chapter 11, something we looked at a little while ago in our study in Isaiah, um, that Jesus is referred to there as the branch, the root of David. Once again, these are prophetic terms, speaking of the one who would grow out of the nation, the one that would be uh, destined to sit on the throne of David, to rule over the house of David for eternity. In Isaiah 60 to 66, there's a great detail there about the coming kingdom. It speaks about Israel being born in a day and the regathering of the, the Jews to their homeland. And that's also dealt with in other places in Isaiah. But then that the Messiah would transform. There'll be a new heavens, a new earth. In terms of the, for the millennium, everything is going to be made new, restored. Uh, the, the act speaks about the restitution of all things. Uh, and God is going to put things back to the way they should have been back in the beginning, back in the Garden of Eden. That's the way it will be for the world. Presumably, we're going to go back to a, a climate, a single climate for the whole earth. Revelation speaks about every island fleeing away. 
Well, if that's true, just follow the process of deduction. If there are no more islands, it means the Earth will return to being one landmass. Now, that may seem strange and hard for us to kind of contemplate, but, you know, to God, that's not a big challenge. Uh, that can easily happen, and we read about all the uh, cataclysmic events that take place during Revelation. Uh, and I think that's exactly what Scripture is saying. And so not only um, the external things, but physically, geologically, the world is going to return to a state in which it was prior to the flood. So the times of restitution of all things really mean exactly that, all things. Uh, and this is all recorded in the Old Testament, these ideas and these things. And of course, then in Daniel chapter two and in chapter seven and elsewhere, there were details about the millennial reign of Christ. Now, I just want to read this to you because there's so many things we could read in regard to this. But speaking of the glory that is going to follow that these prophets wrote about for our benefit, that we would understand that we would see these things. Daniel says this. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man, speaking of Jesus, came with the clouds of heaven. Thinking of the second coming. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father. And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, all nations, and all languages, that's, that's the implication there, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And I heard, but Daniel says this, but I understood not. Do you realize that the things that Daniel wrote, Daniel didn't comprehend all of them. And this is actually in chapter 12, when he gets to the end of his prophecies. And then said, I, oh my Lord, what should be the end of these things? And he said, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Do you realize that the things that Daniel wrote, he didn't fully understand himself. Many of them were, were confusing to him. And yet we sit here and we can study Daniel's book. We can get to know the things he wrote. We can understand the prophetic implications of the times we're living in. How blessed we are to be at this point in history that the things that those prophets wrote, and they diligently searched. They really wanted to understand. They wanted to know the timing of these things. And certainly Daniel, possibly more than any other, maybe with the exception of Ezekiel, um, you know, records details, time specifically for us. Uh, Daniel, I think, understood exactly when the Messiah was to come. And that's why he passed it on to the Magi. That's why the Magi knew what they were looking for, when it was going to occur. Daniel gives us a very specific prophecy to the day. But these things were recorded and we benefit from them now. And it says, unto whom, unto these prophets, it was revealed. Okay, so these things, that, that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister. What was revealed to them? What was revealed was the fact that they weren't writing for themselves. They were writing for those who were to come, those who would follow after them, who would put their faith and trust in God. And that, of course, is us. Unto us, they did minister. Do you just feel a little bit privileged that... The likes of David and Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, all these prophets we read about in the Old Testament, all these individuals, they wrote and they ministered to you and I. Just just, just get your head around that for a second. This is what this is telling us. They wrote, they ministered to us. The things they wrote were here, were written for us. I mean, we have such comfort from the scriptures because they recorded these things. 
And you have to just wonder, you know, what it was like for them not having the entirety of Scripture as we have, the faith they must have had, and the likes of Jeremiah particularly, to endure, being put down a, a pit, a slimy, muddy, horrible pit, sinking up through his waist in his goo. You know, knowing that he was doing what God had called him to do, not fully understanding all that was going to come to pass from it. As we said before, Jeremiah, in terms of success, was probably the least successful prophet because we measure success typically in a worldly estimation of what we think is right or wrong or good or bad. But Jeremiah was successful because he was obedient. And as I said a number of times now, we should scrub success from our definition as, or from our vocabulary as Christians and replace it with obedience. It's not about whether we're successful. It's about whether we're being obedient. You know, and obedient through trials. And this is what Peter's been talking about as well. He's speaking about the way that we should endure through trials, just as James has covered that. We looked in James recently. And just think of these individuals, these prophets, that endured without having the whole of God's word, the whole counsel of God as we have today. They, they didn't have the, the stories that we have necessary to fall back on. You know, we can go to the accounts of David and Goliath and, and, and use that as a, you know, example that God will give us victory over the, all the power of the enemy because we've seen an example of it. You know, of Moses, uh, standing before the, before the shore of the Red Sea and trusting God to deliver. We can go to those things, but what template did Moses have? What, what template did David have as he go up against Goliath? You know, for, for Jeremiah, what models did he have to, to base everything on? You know, we, we are so blessed to have these things. And it kind of harkers back to what James was saying. You remember our study, James? James was saying, come on, as Christians, you've got to really live the life. You have no excuse. You have all these blessings. And James is very, very direct in saying, this is how you must live. You know, this, this, this life he calls us, that we've been called to, James says, there is and there must be no compromise. And you start to understand why, for us, in the time we're living in, with God's word in its entirety, why we shouldn't compromise. Because we've got these incredible examples to follow after. So, let me read on this verse. So, unto whom it was revealed, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Now we'll come to that last bit in a second. But again, Peter's saying, the things that the prophets wrote have been reported to you by the apostles, okay, by those that preached the gospel. The apostles had taken these things, and it's incredible that the ones that Jesus handpicked his disciples, you know, they, they were in the world's estimation untrained and ignorant, and yet they knew scripture. Peter knew scripture. He knew the Old Testament. John knew the Old Testament. You know, these characters that we have in scripture, uh, that formed the early church, they had a great understanding of prophecy. Matthew, I mean, the number of Old Testament references that Matthew refers to, they knew the scripture. Okay. And so they joined the dots together. And they've recorded it, of course, in the Gospels, in the book of Acts. Paul does so much in Romans. and I mean, Paul's understanding of Scripture was phenomenal. And he records these things. They've preached them to us. Okay, Again, notice uh, that with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. What an incredible statement that is as well. Think about that. The Holy Spirit, for us, has been sent down from heaven. And I always think this is a, a really humbling point to consider. David in Psalm 51 writes his, um, uh, what's the best way of putting it? It's just this, this 
declaration of his grief over the situation with Bathsheba. After the event, he realizes that he has sinned against God. And he's broken. And in David's mind, he starts to think about, well, what's going to happen now? And, of course, he thinks of Saul, his predecessor, and that Saul had forfeited the kingdom, forfeited everything because he disobeyed. And he hadn't trusted God. The number of occasions we read in uh, Samuel, the whole account with Saul is very tragic. But the big thing that David says, the, the greatest thing, he says, he pleads with God to not take thy Holy Spirit from me. And he says that because he knew that God's spirit had been removed from Saul. No doubt David also was very aware that God's spirit had also been removed from the likes of Samson. Do you remember the situation with Samson? That after he broke the, the vow that he'd taken, this vow of a Nazarite to remain separated to God, not to cut his hair and so on. You know, that was just an outward symbol of what had already been committed in his heart. Um, yeah, when, when that was broken, he lost his strength. In other words, the Holy Spirit departed from him. And it's not until his hair grows again that the Holy Spirit returns. And of course, Samson has that incredible strength right at the end of his life um, to bring down the, the temple of the Philistines and you know, kill a number of them there. So, you know, you, you think of these uh, situations and David particularly crying out to the Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Well, you know, you and I don't ever have to pray that prayer because we're told in John's gospel that the Holy Spirit, as Peter says here, was sent down from heaven and he has been given to the church forever. You know, you may do some 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 things that, that disappoint you in your own walk with the Lord. You may stumble, you may fall, you may sin. And we do. We all do. You know, John tells us, you know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But the incredible thing is, the one thing you are not in danger of is losing the Holy Spirit. Because he's been sent down from heaven to be with the church, to be with you and I forever. We are indwelt with the spirit of the living God. And that is just a phenomenal blessing that we can't begin to understand. None of the Old Testament prophets had that assurance. that The Holy Spirit came upon them and ministered through them. And of course, David was very aware of the spirit working and moving in his own life. You know, you've got to read some of the Psalms just to see the way the Lord was stirring and working in him. But David knew that that could be forfeited. Not for you and I. We have that assurance. What an incredible blessing. These verses should be a huge encouragement to you. But also, if I may use the vernacular, it should be a real kick up the pants. Because they should tell you, as a Christian, there is no room for compromise. We have been given so much. We've been given everything that we need to live a godly life. Notice the, the last point, though, that it says here. That not just the the prophets wrote so that we would understand these things the things they wrote and that we are beneficiaries of the things that the apostles explained it says here which things the angels desire to look into well what that does tell us is that angels are always learning they don't know everything angels are not omniscient they haven't got all knowledge well that's an interesting point to to understand because it means that satan who is also an angel he was a the, the cherubim class of angel, different types of angels that we read of in scripture. It means that Satan doesn't know everything or either. Satan's learning. Uh, he's learning from scripture. He's learning from the things that, that God has recorded in his word. And of course, he takes things and twists things and misunderstands things and so on. But it's interesting that we know just simply from this statement that angels are learning. Okay. But the interesting thing is angels are learning about God's unfolding plan. Now, I haven't got the scriptures because I want to just turn, if you've got your Bibles, 
uh, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians, again, just one of those fantastic books in the New Testament. So much in Ephesians. That's a great blessing. But Ephesians chapter 3. And um, uh, let me... Uh, yeah, chapter 3, verse 10 is the verse, which is one it says there, yeah. So, where shall we read from? Um, well, Paul in chapter 3 is really talking uh, about the the church. And he starts off... Uh, I'm just going to go back to the beginning of chapter 3 of Galatians. Oh, sorry, Ephesians. And he says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, in other words, the, the message that, that God has given me to preach to you, how that by revelation, this was revealed to Paul, he made known unto me the mystery. Paul says, God made known to me something that was previously unknown. Okay, and he says, wherefore I wrote for in a few words, uh, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. In other words, you might understand what I understand, what God's revealed to me, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, it's the same kind of thing that Peter's saying. What Paul is saying in Ephesians is that he was told of a mystery, something that had been hidden, but has now been revealed. Peter's saying effectively the same thing. Um, that the Gentiles, now this is the mystery, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs out of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So the mystery was that the Gentiles are going to be gathered in to this body, into this family of God, this where we are related to Abraham through faith. Okay, it doesn't mean we become Jews, that's not what it's implying. But God has now this family, the household of faith, uh, the church, as you and I would typically refer to it. Um, and Paul says, that I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, uh, given to me by the effectual work of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of the saints, and deserve it, is what he says, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So we have the benefit as Gentiles. So not only have we got all these things, but as Gentiles we've been given them as well. Uh, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. So from the foundation of the world, these things were hidden. The things that we now experience, and we know that the church and so on, and God's plan, um, they were hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. And look at verse 10. This is the verse we want to get to. To the intent that now, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, that's the angelic beings, they are the principalities and powers, they're angels, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. What a statement. Now, people twist this they don't understand it sometimes it gets um confused it's not saying that the church that you and i are going to explain to angels god's plan some people think that's what it's saying it's not what it's saying let me read it again to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of god so let me again say it's not the church that explains these things to angels, what's happened is that now God has revealed the mystery of the church that he was going to bring together in Christ, all people, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, bond, you know, uh, male, female, all together in one in Christ. And this is God's incredible plan from before the foundation of the world. And now the angels look at the church and go, 
Ah, I get it. I understand. I see what God was doing. There's a, a really lovely song uh, by a Christian singer-songwriter by the name of Leslie Phillips. And we've sung it uh, a number of times at kind of Christmas because it's kind of apt to the kind of Christmas message and so on. Um, but the lyrics uh, from memory are along the lines of an angel just asking, posing the question. This is before Jesus leaves or as Jesus is leaving heaven to come to earth as a baby. Okay, and the, the, the lyrics are, you know, what's the father's mind? Why does he let him go, speaking of Jesus? And if I can't go with him, there's one thing I must know. And this is an angel speaking, effectively. And then the, the, the chorus of the song is, will they love him? Will they love him like I do? Will they take care of him like I do? You know, and it goes on. Yeah, um, I'm ashamed. I'm afraid to let him go. Afraid their hearts aren't true. Will they love him? Love him like I do. You just imagine again that scene in heaven as the angels were seeing their glorious Lord, the, the Creator, Jesus Christ, leave heaven, give up, lay aside his his majesty to come to earth, and you can think. For the angels, they must have been going, what, what is God doing? Why, why would you go into this world as a baby? One of the, the, the weakest and most helpless uh, things you can imagine. Being born as a baby, having to be looked after and cared for and so on. And then worrying whether man would be cruel to him. Would they worship Jesus? Well, of course, as the, the, the narrative goes on, we understand with, you know, Jesus that they didn't worship. They rejected him. They crucified him. You can imagine even then the angels thinking, why? Why has God allowed this? Jesus speaks of the angels that were ready to come and take him down from the cross. These legions of angels, 12 legions of angels. You know, and I've got no doubt 12 legions of angels were literally standing by waiting for that word, waiting for the command. And they would have been in there like a shot. They worship Jesus. They love Jesus. They see Jesus in a way that you and I have not yet had the opportunity to do so. In the glory and the majesty that he had in heaven. And then he dies on the cross. But three days later, a couple of angels have the privilege of going and sitting either end, just like with the cherubim, just like the uh, on the, the mercy seat, sitting either end in the tomb. And that place where that blood was, was laying, just as the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Two angels have the privilege of going and sitting there and seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead and starting to think that, okay, there's, there's a much bigger picture here. What, what is God doing? And then starting to see as the apostles start preaching, as the Lord was revealing to them, they start to understand as the church is formed what God's plan was. So the as it says here in, in Ephesians, the manifold wisdom of God that to the world may seem foolish, but God's ways are above our ways. God's plan and purpose is perfect. And the angels look at the creation of the church, that God has done this, that Jesus built his church as he said he would. And they start to go, I get it now. I understand what God is doing. And so they're looking at what God is doing through the church to understand this incredible plan. Okay, just a, a quick uh, note here, because in Second Peter it speaks there that, that knowing this first, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time, but uh, by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, we need to understand that that which they wrote, they didn't necessarily understand themselves. They wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
They were inspired, but it wasn't necessarily their ideas or their thoughts. This was God working and moving through them. And so with all of that said, Peter now goes on verse 13 and says this, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation. What a great statement we have here. Now, there's actually five specific exhortations contained in these uh, three verses here. We just want to go through them very briefly because they're, they're helpful. Because, again, all that we've just said, the privileged position that we have today as believers, as part of the church, who can't lose the Holy Spirit, that have had all these revelations given to us to understand God's plan. Because of all that, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That's the first one. Then be sober, we're told. The third one, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then we're told to be obedient. And the fourth one, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts. And then the last one is that we're told to be holy because he is holy. Let's have a quick go through each of these because there, there's a lot in here that's helpful or should be helpful to us. So the first one, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, this suggests Exodus 12. If you think back to the Passover, they were told to be ready with shoes on their feet. And they were instructed to, to eat the Passover. So they're literally ready to walk out the door at any moment to begin that journey when the signal was given. It also has the idea of you know, being girded with truth from Ephesians 6 verse 14. In another way of putting this would be prepare your minds for action. You know, obedience is a conscious act of the will. Okay, obedience is not something that we uh, stumble across. It's something we choose to do, and therefore, by you know, deduction, really, disobedience is also a conscious act of the will. So when we disobey, we can't go, oh, well, you know, I couldn't help it. No, we can help it. We have a choice. You know, our mindset should be such that we are to be ready to go at a moment's notice. That's what Peter's saying here. We'll, we'll see in a moment. Peter keeps making reference to the second coming, to the return of Jesus. You know, and for us, getting ready for the rapture of the church, you know, we should be ready to go at a moment's notice. You know, this, this really is, for us, something that should be always uh, paramount in our thinking and our minds, that we should gird up the loins of our minds, get ready to go. Whatever else is going on in your life, we should be getting ready to go. This world is not home. We're, we're just sojourners here. In 2 Timothy 4.8, remember we read there, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Let me ask you the question, are you looking forward to his appearing? You know, uh, what do you care about? You know, do you care more for the things of this world right now than you do uh, the prospect and the opportunity that the Lord is returning for us? Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind, get ready. Be as if it were that you had your shoes on ready to walk out the door. Nothing needs to be put in place. You know, make sure there's, there's nothing on your computer that needs to be deleted or nothing in your heart and your mind that you need to repent of or, or go to the Lord and ask forgiveness for. Make sure that you are ready at a moment's notice when the, that trumpet blast goes and the rapture takes place, that we are ready. That's how we should be. You know, what is on your bucket list? You know, that kind of phrase that the world sometimes uses of all the things I want to do before I die. 
And people have a whole bunch of things, places they want to visit or things they want to do and so on. You know, well, strictly speaking, our bucket list should be pretty empty. There should be just one thing on that bucket list, and that should be going to be with Jesus. Because there's nothing in this world that can compare with that. There's nothing that even comes close. The second exhortation then is to be sober. Now, literally, it means self control there's a number of times this is used in the new testament you see some references there you know the, the greek word comes from a verb and it just means literally to be sober it's only used figuratively in the new testament so it's not speaking of being drunk with alcohol in that sense um it, it means to be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness or excess or another way of putting it is to rather than being controlled by outside circumstances believers should be directed from within so there shouldn't be anything in our lives that is directing our behavior. Okay, so in other ways we could put it is to be, uh, paraphrase really is to be filled with the spirit. You know, the spirit life in us should be overflowing. Now, we've got to be careful because there's a bunch of things that can direct our behavior. In Ephesians 5.18, wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And we're told there, be not drunk with the with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. It's the same idea that, that uh, Paul uses that Peter echoes here. Again, you can become drunk or intoxicated by many things. Love or hobbies, you know, or work, for example. You know, all of these exert control over your will and your passions. I mean, we often have that kind of talk of, you know, people becoming intoxicated. You know, I mean, even Solomon uses that kind of example, uh, speaking of love. You know, it's kind of being drunk with love in that sense. Again, Solomon uses that uh, kind of expression in Song of Songs. But we can also be intoxicated by our hobbies. They can be so uh, overflowing, um, you know, with our um, with the import they have into our minds and our hearts. Work also can become so important to us that it, that it just overwhelms our, our ideas and our, our thinking and all that we need to do and accomplish you know so those are the kind of things and there's others as well of course it's not an exhaustive list by any means but all those exert control now what peter is saying is don't be under the influence of these things in your lives again your primary goal has got to be that we are ready we are looking for the coming of the lord the third thing is set your hope fully now of course holy living demands determination again we said earlier that obedience is a, a choice of the will you know a believer's hope it needs to be set perfectly okay or the word is fully but it really means perfectly or completely uh unchangeably the, the greek word to tell us uh is that has that idea that it should be unchanged not shaken by anything you know and without reserve on the the grace to be bestowed when Jesus Christ is revealed is really the, the way we should understand this. You know, literally in Revelation, that the Greek word apocalypse there of Jesus, when Jesus revealed, you know, that is what our hope should be. That's what we should be focusing on and so on. In uh, Proverbs 29, verse 18, there's a verse I love there. Many years ago, I read it and it really stuck with me. It says, where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. You know, we need to have that vision. We need to have that hope before us all the time. You know, four times Peter's already spoken of the Savior's return and the accompanying ultimate say, stage of salvation when we are finally delivered from the presence of sin. You know, again, think of all the great things, wonderful things in life, and look, we should enjoy life, okay? Solomon kind of makes that, that point. And life is for living, but living for God. 
That, that's how life should be enjoyed. Uh, and God has given us some wonderful things around our lives. We, we're surrounded by blessing in all sorts of ways. But again, life should be lived for God and for his purposes and ultimately looking forward to that time when we're with him. You know, if being apart from God now in that sense is great and wonderful, being with God in his presence will be just beyond that which we can even imagine. Now, sadly, many Christians shy away from prophecy. And of course, prophecy is that light that shines brighter unto the perfect day. That's what we're told in scripture. Prophecy is so important. You know, Christians often see prophecy as something that's confusing or worse still, even frightening. And so they stay away from it. They don't want to talk about prophecy. Many, many churches won't discuss it. But Paul speaks of our blessed hope. He speaks about that time when Jesus will come and take us to be with himself. Of course, it was ignorance of prophecy that caused Israel's eyes to be blinded. Back in Jeremiah, uh, the priests at the time rejected the idea that judgment was coming, rejected the idea that there was going to be something on their horizon. They didn't. They just wanted to bury their head in the sand. Verse 17 of Jeremiah 6, Also I set a watchman over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, We will not hearken. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to get ready for the sound of the trumpet. Well, you know what? Sadly, in the days we live in, there are people that not only believe that, but sadly teach that to large swathes of the church. Rick Warren, and I don't you know, normally name names as such, but you know, in The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren made this dreadful statement. This is written in print. He says, when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus quickly switched the conversation to evangelism. He said, in essence, the details of my return are none of your business. Well, that sounds great, but it's just utterly untrue. That is not what Jesus said. And to suggest to Christians who would read this book that Jesus says, don't worry about prophecy, is so damaging. Many Christians think, oh, all I need to do is just do the, you know, love God thing, love my neighbor, and that's everything's fine. No, 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 we need to understand scripture. I'm not going to go through all of these, but Jesus repeatedly said, take heed. Behold, I've told you before, learn the parable of the fig tree. You know, know these things in there. Be ready, watch, take heed and so on. False Christ are going to come and they're going to rise. You know, but you take heed, watch and pray. Watch therefore, you know, repeatedly, Jesus warns us to be ready and to be watching, to understand prophecy. Jesus spoke about the, the sky and the way that we can discern the, the, the sky. But we, we struggle to understand the times. They should never be the, the way it is for believers. Job actually made a very insightful comment. You know, he says, why is it those that love him don't see his days? Interesting question that Job poses. You know, why is it that those that say they belong to God don't understand the times that they're living in? Well, let, let it not be said of us. Let us be of those that Jesus said that are watching, that are praying, that are looking forward. Okay, so first three, the last two on the list there, uh, the bottom of the page there, the first two, first three, uh, the fourth one is obedient children, and the last one being holy. Um, so let's just take those last two, and then we'll, I think we need to stop there for this morning. Uh, not fashioning yourselves to conform to your former lusts. All right, so that's the, the fourth exhortation that Peter gives us. So rather he's saying we should be obedient. It's a willful choice. But again, let me just remind you of all the things we've been given. You've been given everything you need, every encouragement, every model, every example to learn from. You've been given the Holy Spirit. So now as obedient children and literally, you know, children of obedience, that's to be our characteristic. You know, we're to mold our characters toward his. All right. And again, don't conform to the evil desires of our past sinful lives when we were ignorant of the things of God. 
Uh, that word also is used in Romans 12 verse 2, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 6.21 just says, What fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What Paul says is, you know, look at your old life. Did it give you any blessing? You know, that, that old way of living when you served the flesh, when you serve your own desires and passions, you know, is there anything you can harken back to and say, actually, you know, that really was good for me, it really helped me? No. All of those things we look back back at with regret. You know, we, we look back and think, actually, you know, I really wish I hadn't have done that or, or been to that place or seen that thing or said that thing or hurt that person or entered into that relationship. You know, the, the fruit of the old life, isn't it like rotten manner? You know, it may be pleasurable at the time, but, you know, the next day, oh, it stinketh, doesn't it? You know, that, that's how that, that manner was when it was left the following day. Well, that's a little bit like the old life. You know, it may seem pleasurable at the time. Moses uh, obviously rejected the, the pleasure of sin for a season in Egypt to follow God, to, to seek God. You know, that's how we should be. You know, we should reject those things because they don't bring us any blessing. They don't help our lives. You know, and compare what you now have, which is in Christ, which is incorruptible compared to what that you had in the world or what you would have if you were to play around with those things. And, you know, 1 Peter one fifteen again, he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation. And this is the fifth one on the list, the last one we'll look at for this morning. That conversation, that old English word, just means behavior or conduct. You know, their lifestyle was to reflect not their former ignorance, okay, but the holy, hagios is the Greek there, nature of their heavenly father who gave them a new birth and called them to be his own. That's how our conduct and our behavior should be. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we see this echoed. You know, you go to um, Leviticus uh, and you see repeatedly there that admonition for us to be holy because it is written, be you holy for I am holy. That's the standard God sets. That's what he's asking of you and I. Reject everything in the world. You know, we have been given his Holy Spirit. We've been given these great prophets that spoke about the days, the times we're living in. They gave us these wonderful examples and models that we can hold on to, that can give us hope and comfort in the challenges and the situations we face. You know, and let me remind you again, these verses don't speak of legal requirements, but it's a reminder of a Christian's responsibility in his inner life and outer walk and we do this not because we are told we have to. We have liberty. And again, we were talking about this in our Bible study in Galatians on Thursday. We have this liberty, but it is out of love for Jesus. Of all that he's done, all that he's given us, out of love, that's the reason we should walk this way. Chuck Misler says, Through absolute holiness, sorry, though absolute holiness can never be achieved in this life, all areas of life should be in the process of becoming completely conformed to God's perfect and holy will. Again, Paul speaks of that liberty we have in Christ to love, not by constraint, or to serve him rather, not by constraint, but through love. Okay, let's uh, let's leave it there. We could uh, spend longer um, going through these things, but I think that's probably enough for our, our minds to, to try and absorb for this morning. Father, thank you for these things this morning. Lord, we pray that you would impress them upon our dull of hearing hearts and minds. Oh, Lord, we want to respond to the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, we want to live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord, and we recognize in our own hearts that nothing of the old life truly benefits us. It doesn't bless us. It doesn't make us happy. It doesn't make us fulfilled. Lord, it just leaves us empty. It just leaves us with that 
bitter taste, Lord, and we don't want that, Lord. You've promised us great blessings, and we want to walk with you and know those blessings. Lord, you've given us so much. You've given us these promises in your word, these great models and examples from these prophets that wrote down these things for our benefit. The things that were written aforetime, and Lord, they're for our learning, that we through the patience and the comfort of the scripture might have hope. And so, Lord, impress these things upon our hearts. And Lord, by your grace, let us be holy, for you are holy. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.